in the afternoon. So they're there. I am here. You can pray for them and for us being able to get back together uh, later this week. But let me pray for our time of in God's word. Oh, Lord, we thank you that this is a time of much joy. We thank you, Lord, that Christmas songs with great theology are playing through the streets and in shopping centers. We thank you, Lord, for excitement and blessings. But, Lord, many of us do feel sadness. Lord, there, there are times where the world is not as it should be. Our families are not as they should be. We are not as we should be. And there is a frustration in the holiday time. And so Lord, I ask that you use this sermon to bring joy, that you would be glorified by it to the praise of your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. The ghost of Christmas past, for most of you know very well, and if you have not read the Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens, 1843 classic, A Christmas Carol, you should read it or watch one of the many adaptations, but come on, read the book, okay? Like it, it's, it's wonderful. Um, and in there, he has three ghosts to try and go to Ebenezer Scrooge and call him to repentance, to change from his miserly ways. And one of those was the ghost of Christmas past, who comes in and shows Scrooge all the past Christmases and how wonderful they were and how wonderful he was. And if the ghost's purpose is to help Scrooge remember who he once was, maybe he could become that kind man again, looking back on those previous days. Now, sometimes that's for us as well. We can be reminded of good times and be like, wow, I used to have so much joy. I should go back. Or I used to do this. I should do that again. But sadly, I think often those memories can be haunting as a ghost usually is considered today where they are times where it was so much better. And I know I've talked to many of you, and you've said, oh, your own frustrations about the joys of Christmas's past versus the present. Maybe for some of you, it was when you were a child, and you remember how magical it all was, and getting that one gift that you just have so much joy over. Or maybe it was when your own kids were younger, and they were so blessed, and everything seemed to have so much purpose, and now that family is not the way it should be. Or maybe you remember a time when everyone celebrated Christmas. Every store was closed. Everyone said Christmas was important, and now it's not. People look at today, they look at the defeat of Christ, the Christian ethic in our culture, and they say, why, oh God? And there's a discouragement and perhaps one of the most dangerous things that happen when you feel discouraged, you're like, oh, but I shouldn't feel discouraged. I should be a Christian. I'm going to be quiet about this. No one can know that I'm not actually excited for Christmas this year. See, memories can be helpful or they can be painful based on the context we put them in, what we put them in. And the psalm in Psalm 42 today puts in the context of better times, sad present but a hopeful future. Now, as we always do, if you haven't opened up your, your Bible already, please do to Psalm 42. And perhaps you notice the big, bold words before Psalm 42, book two. Now that is inspired writing. That is from the original. That is not something that was added by the people who make the English Standard Version or whatever version of Bible that you use. That is the original. This is an inspired divide that tells us 
something new is happening in the Psalms. Uh, scholars disagree over what is the key markers of each one. Largely, this is David writes a lot of the Psalms in book one, and then book two brings in other people who've learned from David, like the sons of Korah, which we'll have today. Um, clearly, even Psalm 42 is leading up to Psalm 43, which is actually a continuation of it. You can see the same line at the end of verse 5 in Psalm 43, which says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation of my God, which is a repeat of Psalm 42. Um, Psalm 45 is this call to help. But Psalm, um, sorry, Psalm 44 is a call to help. Psalm 45 is actually looking forward to the king who will restore everything. But right now, the sons of Korah are reflecting on a dark time because this is what we call a lament song. You probably know of Lamentations, right? We'll come back to that. But if you notice, that title is To the Choir Master, a masquil of the sons of Korah. This is a song written that the choir master is supposed to teach the people to sing. The word masquil is, it's a bit unknown exactly what it is, but scholars think it is combination of the word artful and skillful learning put together. And so it means a artistically molded song to teach wisdom. This is a psalm that is supposed to teach you how to respond to your own dark days when you remember the better days. The, the, the lament part of it, the word lament means cry in grief. Thus, the whole book of Lamentations is often seen as a crying book. Lament is described as by one author, how you live between the poles of the hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. How do we live in the middle between knowing God is in control and yet things are really bad? Lament is not just a one and done either. It's something that happens over and over again. If you just skim over the whole context of this psalm, you'll see verses one through four is a bunch of sad statements with a happy statement of verse five, hope in God, for I shall again praise his name. Then verses six through seven is a bunch more sad statements with a happy statement in verse eight of the Lord commanding his steadfast love. And then again, verses nine and 10 is some more sad statements with the command to hope in God in verse 11. Then 43 starts off with some more sad statements. And again, a command to end in hope in verse five of chapter 43. It's often said that we expect a simple Bible verse or a prayer to mean that we'll never suffer again. I'm having a bad day. Give me the Bible verse that'll just change my whole perspective and it'll all be better. But in his great book, Deep Clouds, Dark Mercies, Derek Verkop, I think that's how you say his name, he says, it's not as if you say one lament prayer and you never need to lament again. Life isn't that simple. Grief is not that tame. Instead, we must enter into lament over and over so that it can lead us to trust. That, that's the path of this psalm. You can see we're going with the acronym lament because it's a lament psalm. So the goal today is to help you see how we should lament in repeated waves when the memories of better times wash over you. How, how do you repent over and over again when you 
have those memories of it was better before come over you. There are two major laments in this, is verses 1 through 6, and then verses 7 through 11. We'll talk about both of those and work through the process. If you're taking notes, it starts off with lament number one. Hope when you remember times with God as better. Hope that when you remember the times that you had with God as better in the past. And he has two acts of remembrance, a sad act and a happy act. The first, verses one through four, is the sadness of loss. The sadness of loss. Psalm 42, one through four. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng, how I'd lead them in the procession of the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and a multitude-keeping festival. The sadness of loss. He starts off with his thirst for God in verse one. And he talks about deers panting for water. It's a, deers are beautiful animals. We, we started off with that beautiful song. It's an older song. And we're like, oh, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longeth after you. Oh, so sweet. But, but that's not why Korah notices. The, the son of Korah notices the deer. He's not thinking, oh, sweet, beautiful deer. He's thinking of the deer's desperate yearning for water. Did you know camels can survive 15 days without water? Horses can go three to four days without water. Deer can go a month without eating, but not more than 24 hours without drinking. Deer will die if they do not get fresh water within a day. In the same way, what he's saying is not, oh, I want to be this beautiful deer, but I am desperate like that deer is desperate. The soul needs its creator. My soul pants for you, oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He clarifies this isn't just any God. This is not the God of idols. The prophet Habakkuk would look at the nations, look at his own country, Israel, and say in Habakkuk 2.19, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. Habakkuk 2.19 is talking about the false gods out there that aren't alive. He wants the living God. The idol might be beautiful on the outside, but it's dead within, right? But we get to the problem in verses two through four. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. The fact is he wants to be with God, but he's not. He wants that fresh water, but instead he's drinking his own tears. See, the psalmist knew from David and from others that God is everywhere. It's not like God is not with him. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But he uses a very important Hebrew word for appear. It means a formal appearance in a gathering to praise others. This is the separated gathering at the temple, the special praising of God. This is gathering for church on Sundays. Like when you go other places, God's always with you. 
But here, it's different. We're together. And, and his memories make it even worse. He says, verse 4, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. The author, the son of Korah, was a lead worshiper. So remember, these are the descendants of Korah, who was the one who rebelled against Moses in the wilderness. But his children have become worship leaders. In 1 Chronicles 12, it seems like they supported David against Saul. So they came to support the anointed leader. These are the ones who are like, no, we have been for David and for God the whole time. When Saul was trying to kill the priests and the um, prophets of God, we supported David. And when David became king, they were assigned responsibilities of the temple, including leading in musical worship. We have at least 12 psalms that were written by the sons of Korah. And this son of Korah is writing about the fact that he had been leading the people in worship at the three yearly festivals. They'd gather together, a whole nation would gather in Jerusalem, they'd praise God, and he was at the front. He was leading. It was good times. But the good times are not now. Right? And that actually makes things worse. The author was a suffering saint, as often are. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, was said to have his spirit would go to the heaven of exaltation. He would be in great joy, and yet he would also be frequently in despair. On his very deathbed, he had tempests, frustrations. It was said he sobbed himself into his last sleep, like a great wearied child. The man who stood toe-to-toe with the Roman Catholic Church and the kings of Europe cried like a baby on his deathbed. Charles Spurgeon once asked, why is it the children of light sometimes walk in thick darkness? Why do the heralds of daybreak find themselves at times in tenfold night? We must remember, brothers and sisters, that those of us who tell others to rejoice in God should not be surprised when we need an oppor- when we need to rejoice in God. And dark times present the perfect opportunity to do so. Spurgeon, again, writing about his own discouragement and depression, said that depression comes over me whenever the Lord is preparing a larger blessing for my ministry. A cloud is black before it breaks and overshadows before it yields a deluge of mercy. Depression now has become to me as a prophet in rough clothing. Oh, don't, don't be surprised often when people who lead struggle. Don't be surprised when you're trying to encourage others and say, you need to trust in God that you are encouraged to trust in God. We were talking on our men's walk yesterday about why do sometimes righteous men who have big platforms, why do they fall into sin? And I think some of that is this case that they they get into this idea, I am so important, I can't admit that I struggle. I can't admit that I question and I have a problem. And so they don't take it to God, they don't take it to anyone, and then sin overpowers them. The psalmist shows us instead, it is good to speak of such things. 
you may have noticed depression in our society can be a very vague term. Depression can be, you know, just the Monday blues, or it can be someone in a catatonic state. And it can mean so many different things, but I, I think often when we use it in popular culture, it's based on this assumption that you're supposed to always be happy. You're supposed to always feel good to have there no anxiety, no discontentment, no frustration. You have the American dream, so take it. But the Bible is full of people who, and Christian history is full of people who often describe themselves as melancholy, what we might call depression these days. And I want you to be like David and the other psalmists who do not see the negative feelings as a sin, but as a legitimate part of their relationship with God. We have these feelings, we're supposed to do something with them. It's not just deny them or pretend like they don't exist because they're there. Sin is when those feelings take you away from God. When you stop doing what God has called you to do, when you deny him or you say, forget it, I I feel too bad, I'm not going to do what he's commanded me. And, And there are some people who are being treated for depression who really need to just repent. They need to go to God for their solutions because they feel the weight of all their wrong. And there are others who are seeking to respond rightly to those feelings. Don't don't get me wrong. But how does a righteous person respond then when those dark feelings, the dark night of the soul stretches upon them? He gives a moment of hope in verses five and that first part of six. He says, the second part of this, the A in lament is asserting hope to yourself. Asserting, bring it forth, remind yourself of hope. Verse five, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I believe that the Legacy Standard Bible, Aaron Balazan loves this. I think it translates this passage very well where it says, verse five, why are you depressed, O my soul? Why are you upset? Wait for God, for I will again give thanks to my God for his saving intervention. And this is asserting hope to yourself. Here he begins to, instead of just listening to his own soul, his soul is sad. He brings up memories and he's like, man, as I, as I pour out my soul, it's just frustrating and I'm sad. What does he do? He interrogates himself. He goes, why me? Why are you doing this? And then he commands himself. He says, soul, why are you heartsick? Why are you so depressed? It's the same word used in the book of Lamentations. In the middle section where it all gets to a head and he says in Lamentations 3, 19, remember my affliction and my wanderings the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. I love that phrase. It's bowed down. But I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. That's the phrase there, cast down, bowed down, weighed down. Turmoil. You know, that sense of uneasiness, frustration. You're not who you should be. Things are not right. And instead of listening to the memories that come and, f- and flow over him, he instead says, I will have hope. He makes a conviction. Not hope like, 
man, I really hope my family picked up on my hints that I was dropping them for Christmas presents because I really want this thing. And maybe they all picked up on it. Like, no, 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 this isn't like a, I really don't know if they're listening well, but I kind of hope they are. This means waiting as the Legacy Standard Bible translates it. It's the assurance that God will show up, that God will act. And so I do not see the truth now, but I know I will. Why does he hope? He hopes because he will praise God just like he did before. We can remind ourselves that it's not just the days of Christmas past that weigh us down, but the reason for this season, I know that phrase is often used, but it's so true. The reason for this season, why are we worshiping? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, spiritual depression or unhappiness in the Christian life is very often due to our failure to realize the greatness of the gospel. Christian, you have joy because Jesus was born. God understands the pain of living in this world because he lived in it. He he lived this life. He suffered the way you suffered. He had the family drama the way you had family drama. He had all the temptations around him and yet he never gave in. He never sinned. And Jesus died to take that punishment that you deserve because when you look at the way that other people have disappointed you for Christmas, chances are you've done something to someone else as well. When you're upset and someone has hurt you, you have hurt others. I know I have. We have sinned. And ultimately, one of our greatest sins is when we have all those good blessings and we ignore the giver of those blessings. We open the presents from God and we don't even look at him to say thanks. We reject him and praise the creation rather than creator. But Jesus died. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again. And he appeared to his disciples. And he returned to heaven. And now he prays for us. If you're not a Christian, realize that Christmas is not just another sweet story. I I know we've said this already, and we're going to say it a million times. It's not about a baby just in a manger, but it is the beginning of God breaking into all the sorrow and pains of this world. See, friends, we need to remind ourselves to wait on God in hard times because memory is important. David, when he returned to Ziklag, where all his wife and his children were, he found the city burned, the gold, the gold and goods stolen, his wives and children carried off, his troops ready to stone him. And it says these important words in 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel, he encouraged himself in the Lord. Again, Charles Spurgeon said, he would have fainted if he had not believed to see the goodness of the Lord Accumulated distress increases each other's weight and they play into each other's hands like bands of robbers, ruthless to destroy our comfort. Wave upon wave is severe for the strongest swimmer. I I think often we tend to believe that we're not in control of ourselves. Like we're not in control of our memories. They, They feel like whatever crashes over us, we have to just swim in it and it hits us. But in fact, Dr. Matt Rare, writing on a book on memory, 
says that the, you, you, the creative function of the mind involves the will and the emotions. Active memory draws upon the will and emotions to produce action, like worship and obedience. Think of it like you've heard elephants always remember, right? And that's because 98% of the, well, elephants have a lot of neurons. They have very big brains. However, 98% of their neurons reside in the part of the brain that is called the cerebellum, which controls the elephant's trunk. So actually, most of an elephant's brain is not its memory. It's for controlling that big behemoth. Unlike elephants, humans' neurons are densely located in the frontal cortex, the part of the brain that involves high-level thinking. Christians, all human beings made in the image of God, but Christians in particular, are called to control our memories by thinking on what is true. We don't just passively let it hit us. We control and focus on what is true. As you feel discouraged and the thoughts come upon you, discouraging memories, doubts, you say as the psalmist does, self, listen for a moment, and I will speak to you, me, you, this thing going on here, right? I'm going to remember the way that God is worthy of praise. I'm going to remember the reason for Christmas. But lest you believe that it's just a simple fix and you just say, self, listen, and then it's all better, we have a second lament. Verses 6 through 11, lament number 2. Hope in God when you feel God has forgotten you. Hope when you feel God has forgotten you. You might notice in your Bible, ESV puts it, verse 6 is connected with verse 5. There's some debates about that. Um, I'm going to go with just the way it's laid out in the ESV, but it's thought that could be part of verse 5 like it is later, or it could be a separate part leading up. Either way, God is the focus. And here in verses 6 through 11, we get these four steps of faith. These four steps of faith when it feels like God has forgotten you. And it begins with verse 6 and 7, when you feel maltreated by God. Verse 6 and 7, feeling maltreated by God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep and the roar of waterfalls at the breakers and your waves have gone over me. Once more, this son of Korah returns his soul to the darkest, darkest of depths. The, the darkness doesn't really lift, right? It, it's still there. There's no voice from God. His doubts rise. He right now is remembering all these things from Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is to the north of the Sea of Galilee. Mizar is an unknown place, but it seems to be the beginning of the Jordan River. If you remember, the Jordan River starts in the north of Israel and goes all the way down to the Dead Sea in the south. And so Jerusalem is in Judea, which is in the south. He's not there. He is far away from where he wants to be at the temple in Jerusalem. He's on the other side, and the side that's kind of like maybe not totally Israel or maybe just the outer, outer parts of it. 
He is downcast because he remembers God. His tribulations, his separation drive him to God, not away. And and his theology is so helpful for us right here. Because you notice, look down at verse 7. It says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. It's God's waterfalls that are hitting him. It's God's breakers that are hitting him. These are unruly waters. And back in verse one, what does he want? He wants nice flowing streams. What is he getting? Waves in the face. These are not nice pleasant waves that you have your coffee as you walk along the beach. These are massive storms that are knocking him down. And he has no problem saying that God is in control. God is causing these difficulties and he wants to be with God. Deuteronomy 32, 39, Yahweh says, I, even I am he, there is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive. I wound, I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. As Charles Spurgeon said, and a lot of Charles Spurgeon's talks about this a lot. He says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. This is not some sarcastic, ah, pucker up waves, I'm going to take you. But it's one of humble sobriety, childlike faith in God who works all things for our good. And a lament exists and can only exist when you believe Times are bad, but God is in control of even these bad times. See, godly grief admits when there is concern, when you have questions. Grief, like I said, is not tame, it's vicious. Lode Jones said, the kind of person who thinks that once you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, all your problems are left behind, and the story will be, they all lived happily after, ever after, is certain sooner or later to suffer from spiritual depression. You think everything will be better. This is the end of the story. I became a Christian. And it was, they lived happily ever after and nothing more is said. No, lament gives us the ability to take those fears directly to God. And the simple first step when you feel those emotions and those weights is tell them to God. Often we feel like trusting God Praying to him, using his word is not working because it doesn't get easier right away. You don't feel better. The weight is still upon you. But the sons of Korah show us that the goal is not just to feel better. The goal is to long for God more. And we we sang it and you're like, oh, that sounded so lovely. But when you put my soul wants you only, wait a second. That means I don't have all these other things. Will we say, is this bringing me closer to God? That's the question we ask when it says, is this working? Is this bringing me closer to God? Instead of letting prayers be on your timetable, when you are in fact then God controlling the universe, take your problems to God again and again and again. And if we are closer to him, we'll find ourselves, secondly, entrusting 
yourself the love of God in verse 8. Verse 8, by the day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life, entrusting yourself to the love of God. Now, you might not notice this in a quick reading, but an important change has taken place in how he describes God here. And look down in your Bible at verse 8. He doesn't say God. He says, by the day the Lord, all caps, Yahweh. This is the covenant name of God. Everywhere else where it's been saying God, it's the word Elohim, which refers to God as creator. That's the way we use God as the creator God, the all-powerful God. When he says Yahweh, that is, I'm remembering the promise-keeping God. He's not just the creator. He is a God who has made promises to his people. And so with that comes the parallel of the song. It's parallel to prayer. So it's a, it's a song that he's praying in the night, much like much of the, the Psalms are. And this is what Saul and Silas did. In Acts 16, they were thrown in prison And it says in Acts 16, 25, they were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Our Lord Jesus even did this. We often think, well, life is supposed to be easy for a Christian. Christ did not have it easy. In Matthew 26, he says to them, Matthew 26, 38, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch for me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We are to entrust ourselves to God instead of just trying to focus on the problem or put it off. An emergency room doctor was telling the story once of how he walked into a room. He got, he, he got the little report. It was off the news. They get the report. They read the paperwork. Okay, all right, this woman is coming in for a problem with a breast complaint. Okay, fine. He walks in the room, and the smell overpowers him in the moment. He's like, what is wrong? Something is very wrong with this woman. And he asks her, what's going on? She says, ah, well, you know, six months ago, I noticed a mass in my right breast that rotten to the point of falling out of my body. I stuck it in the fridge in a baggie for a month and finally decided to go to the emergency room where her family was saying, you need to go to the doctor. This smells horrible. Something is wrong. I think often our suffering and our sin is treated that way. We place it in a baggie in the freezer and we hope that everything will resolve. Time heals all wounds, right? Like, let me just put it underneath the rug. It it will get better. I'll feel better. It, It will resolve itself. It's done it before. Instead of going to the great physician, the patient languishes at home. Friends, this is a call for you to go to God. Like Jesus said with the attitude of not my will, but yours be done. I trust you, help. See, the situation hasn't changed. The psalmist, the son of Korah, still finds himself in 
the wilderness, away from where he wants to be. But he's found hope in God's promises being worked out. He is praising God because he's brought his issues to God. He says, Lord, I know you will work. You might think, ah, wow, good. Second time around, he's finished. Okay, life is going to be better now. But real life is not that way, is it? And so we get to the third act of faith, navigating the lie that God doesn't care. Verse 9 and 10. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? With a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Again, third act of faith, navigating the lie that God doesn't care. Verses 9 and 10. He starts off saying, God is his rock. That's a phrase often used in the Psalms of a secure place. Jesus used that image, build your house on a rock and not on the sand. It's stable. It's secure. It's unmoving. But at the same time, he's saying, why have you left me, O God? The psalmist is expressing this feelings of being abandoned by none other than God himself. It seems like the reason he's not in Jerusalem where he wants to be in this corporate gathering being encouraged by the saints is because of enemies that are keeping him away. Whatever they might be doing, we're not told what. It's obviously supposed to be given to us in various circumstances, so you could apply it in your own life. But that's why something's keeping him away. And the enemies repeat their question from verse 3, saying, where is your God? He's not here for you. You should give up. And so for the psalmist, he says in verse 10, this is like having his bones shattered because there seems to be some truth in them. Our bones provide support for our body. They allow us to go and like attacks like this, break them because you're like, well, maybe they're right. Maybe Jesus isn't real. Maybe this is just like Santa Claus. It's amazing how all the encouragements given to us again and again can come, they can be told to us, and we forget them. And yet one lie, and we struggle immensely. It just wiggles its way into your head. This this happens and is reflected in our bodies as well. Did you know that the tongue contains more Um, taste receptors for bitterness than it does for sweetness. And the same way, our minds cling on to bitter thoughts more than they do to sweet thoughts, don't they? Someone can give an insult to you and you will remember it for life. Someone will compliment you unendingly and you won't even believe them. We have to be able to navigate those lies by directing ourselves to the truth. Again, once more, Bring your complaints to God. Even if your complaint is directly at God, he's big enough. He can handle this. You'll see the quote in your bulletin. Jerry Bridges defines trust a certain way. Trust is not a passive state of mind. It's a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold on the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. It's an active, vigorous, grabbing hold of the promises of God. That Jesus came 
as a baby, and that he's coming again as a king. When foundational doubts arise, when you even get these questions of, does God even care about me? There is nothing more important than vigorously instead of and vigorously going towards God instead of passively going back. The world will tell you at times, you know, hey, follow my God. Your religious Christmas isn't very satisfying, so find a Christmas full of stuff. Find a Christmas full of possessions. Find a Christmas full of people. Find a Christmas full of intoxication. Find a Christmas full of warmth because of what we can offer you instead of what God offers you. And our response must be to say, no, I will cling to Christ. The psalmist ends once again with this very important phrase as he is talking to himself. The fourth step of faith is talking to yourself about hope. Verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And fourth step is to talk to yourself about that hope. Once again, go back to it. It might be, it might be same old story. Do it again. He calls himself to wait on God to remember his hope, to know God is going to act, to preach to himself. If you feed your faith, your doubts will starve. What, what makes it strong? You know what happens when you have lots, you get those tastes in your mouth, right? If you're adding like salty chips and you have a salty chip and you want another one, another one, and you're like, okay, no more. But they're just sitting there. You know what you're gonna do? Grab some more. You know how you change that? You have to get a cleanser for your palate, right? Get that taste out of your mouth. Put something else. Drink some milk and it absorbs all that taste, right? And then suddenly you're like, oh, I don't really feel like those chips anymore. If you are intentional about dwelling on the beauty of God, on his word, doubt will have no room to fester in your heart and your faith will grow. He fills his heart and his mind and his memory, his whole self with something else. That is what we are called to do. If we've seen that God wants us to lament, L-A-M-E-N-T, loss should be recognized as real. We should assert the hope that God is stronger. Mistreatment observations should be brought to God. We entrust ourselves to God and his love. Navigating the lies that come against us will be necessary, and talking to your own soul must be the goal. And and we see that in dark times, it changes our faith to drive us to God. This is not just reciting Bible verses to yourself. The Bible is not mere mantras. Sometimes we want to treat it like that. Oh, let me just say this, this mantra. Oh, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe. No, that, that's not what this is calling for. This is fighting with your soul to choose to believe in truth in the midst of chaos. It can happen the first time you remind your soul of the truth. However, it probably means two minutes later, you know what you're going to do? 
it all over again. And we must believe that as we plant these truths in our heart, it will result in something good. We don't often see this because we live in beautiful Southern California where it's sunny the week before Christmas and it's bright and beautiful. And while it's kind of cold, if you go out into the sun for a little bit, you'll start to warm up. Like we went for this walk yesterday with the men. It was cold in the morning, but then the sun came out. Man, all the jackets came off because it's hot. We're in Southern California. But you know, it's not like that everywhere. In some places, it's covered with snow right now. And in those places, farmers still need to farm because they still need to grow things. And so farmers have this practice in the fall when everything is dying and all the leaves are falling and it's getting darker, they're out there planting seed. And then it comes and the snow is coming quickly. So they have to plant it all before the snow comes and they look like idiots. Like what in the world, farmers? Why are you putting a bunch of stuff? Everything is dead right now. What are you doing? The snow is coming. It's going to kill anything that survived. But farmers aren't stupid, are they? Farmers know that this is no mistake, for they are sowing the winter wheat. The wheat is planted in the final days of summer, and it lies buried in the fields through all the cold, dark months of winter. At Thanksgiving, at Christmas, at New Year's, and even in all the way into Easter, it appears to be a bunch of wasted effort. It appears that it was foolish. But the farmers know better, don't they? For as winter draws to a close, snow melts, the ground warms, the wheat bursts to life from the ground and begins a great harvest for them. Friends, we must remember what is sown in the season of cold and darkness will bring a rich harvest in the season of warmth and brightness. When you have those dark moments, Sometimes they seem to last all season. And yet, as you continually plant and sow and cultivate your field, there will be a harvest because God is the one to bring it about. Let me pray. Lord, I know many people suffer that often, Lord, we are reminded of our own disappointments and weaknesses, especially in times where things are supposed to be so good. So Lord, we pray that you open those people's eyes to the good that you are doing. For those of us who are rejoicing, Lord, may we take these memories and cherish them and thank you for them and know, Lord, that we will praise you again in the future when times are dark. All of us will go through some trials at one point. So prepare us, O oh Lord. Use even these songs that we're about to sing to build in us, Lord, that hope, those seeds of faith that will flourish in days to come. To the praise of your name, almighty God, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Amen.